Good morning to each one of you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. The title of the message this morning is, What Does It Mean to Be a New Testament Church? Is Bethel a New Testament Church? I think these are questions that, that we should be asking ourselves. It's easy to, uh, to compare ourselves to other churches, to uh, our ancestors perhaps, and, and come to a conclusion that, you know, we're just at a pretty good place. Uh, the reality is, are we? Are we what Christ had in mind when he went back to heaven and left the task with his disciples to build a church? This sermon is born out of a heart of concern for the Christian church. Is what we're seeing in the worldwide Christian church today, is it really a New Testament church? I remember as a little boy, uh, coming to the re realization that, that there's Christians that, that believe you can be divorced and remarried, and that kind of shocked me a little as a young fellow. And, you know, and now there's Christian churches that, that believe you can be a homosexual and, and you can uh, be a Christian. And that is quite a bit more shocking. This sermon comes from a concern for the Mennonite church. When you look at the worldwide Mennonite church, we're seeing very little difference than the worldwide Christian church. Anything you can find in a Christian church, and we're you know, using these names rather loosely here this morning, uh, you will find in, in Mennonite churches. There's a lot of uh, local Baptists that would be horrified at what goes on in Mennonite churches. This sermon comes from a deep concern for people right here in this room. Are we putting the New Testament to practical daily living in, in our lives? Now, if you hadn't guessed it yet, this subject is way too big for the next 35 minutes. And uh, the last time I preached this, I went 10 minutes overtime, so uh, just a little warning there. Uh, I personally have a lot more questions than I'm going to be able to answer here this morning. And I'm sure you have questions that I hadn't even thought of, and I probably don't have answers for those questions either. But we do have the New Testament here with us, right in front of us. So let's look and, and see what we can learn the, this morning uh, and we'll just touch on a few things. We certainly can't cover everything. Even if we study scripture diligently for the rest of our lives, we won't fully comprehend what it means to be a New Testament church. That's something we will continue to learn till the day we die. What it means to live out in practical daily living. The New Testament church. Jesus is the foundation of the New Testament church. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the head of the church. We were talking about that at the wedding yesterday. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Jesus is the redeemer of the church. You can kind of reverse it. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. The temple of God. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 says this. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's a good text verse for this message. Let's read that again. For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's what it means to be a New Testament church. There's a question that comes up different times when when we're talking about what does it mean to be a New Testament church, and the question is raised, well, was the New Testament church organized like we are today? Uh, that's a valid question. And, and it's not an easy one to answer. Things were new and things were growing rapidly and, and there was persecution and a scattering and, and uh, you know, it, it's, it's a difficult question to, to answer. But I think there are some things that we can conclude. The, the New Testament church had leaders Paul's letter to Titus says this, Titus 1.5, For this cause left I thee in Crete. Paul's saying, For this cause I left you, Titus, in Crete, that thou shouldst set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Paul's telling Titus, We need, we need elders in every city, someone to lead the people. Acts chapter 20, Paul is traveling and he's he's, uh, making a brief stop uh, with the elders at at Ephesus. And this is the counsel he gives to them in Acts 20 verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Paul's telling the elders there at Ephesus that that there's a group of people that have been cleansed from their sins by Jesus' precious blood. And you're leaders over these people. Feed them. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey those that have the rule over you and be submissive, for they watch for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable 
for you. So we can conclude from these verses several things. Uh, the leaders knew who their flocks were. You know, if Paul tells the elders at Ephesus, feed, feed the flock, they knew who he was talking about. When the Hebrew writer says, obey those that have the rule over you, uh, they knew who their leaders were. How did they know this? I don't know. Uh, did they have an olive tree out back where they carved names on and that was who their flock was? Uh, probably not. I don't think olive trees are big enough for 3,000 names. Uh, did they have a scroll somewhere where they had all the names written down? I don't know. Uh, maybe it was too dangerous to do that because they were being persecuted and they didn't want a list of names anywhere. I don't know. But somehow they knew. The leaders knew who their flock was. The flock knew who their leaders were. And so I think we can conclude from that that there were organized congregations much like we have today. And we knew we knew who, as leaders, we knew who our flock is, and, and as a flock, you know who your leaders are. And there's, there's a, an accountability there. This verse here in Hebrews 13 that talks about leaders giving account, you know, that comes, comes up every once in a while when, when we as leaders get phone calls. Uh, Young fellows, young girls, it happens. These young guys uh, get in contact with some dad somewhere in some other community and, and uh, wants to date their daughter. And we get a phone call and says, hey, what, what about this guy? What do you know about him? And, uh, you know, those, those phone calls were kind of hard for me to answer sometimes, but it's getting easier as I have daughters that age, or at least one <laughs> uh, that age, uh, I can tell exactly how I feel. Would I want that young fella marrying my daughter? And how would I feel about that? It, it gets very easy uh, to answer those questions. I was talking to a father here some time ago, and uh, I said, uh, you really want my honest opinion? He said, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, I have a daughter that age, and, and I know that young man, and, uh, and I just went on to say, this is exactly how I see it. And uh, he thanked me for it. I don't know the man, never met the man. Uh, but it's a joy when I can say, yes, that's a, that's a fine young man. I would be happy to have him for my son-in-law. I was kind of hoping maybe he... No, I never said that. <laughs> but, you know, it's, that's a joy when, when we as leaders can give that kind of an account. That, you know, fine young man, I have, you have my full blessing to, to invite him to come and, and uh, start a relationship with, with your daughter. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2. 
You know, we're talking about what it, does it mean to be a New Testament church? And were the New Testament churches organized? Or was it just, just kind of, you know, little things happening here and there with no structure? Revelation chapter 2, let's pick up at verse 2. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that which thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We'll, we'll stop there for sake of time. But here, what, what is being said is that this church is dealing with sin in the church, and they're being uh, commended for that. You're, you're not putting up with evil in the church. And then he says, but you do. You do have a problem. You've left your first love, and that is a problem, and it's a serious problem, and it's something that you will be held accountable for. And then he goes on and talks about the Nicolaitans, and we won't go into that uh, this morning, what all that is, but, but he again is saying that it's good that you hate that, because I also hate that. So we're, we're concluding here that, that churches have structure, they have leaders, they have a flock, and there's a responsibility to work at ridding ourselves of sin and evil within. Slip over to verse 14. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them which hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, it's not quite clear to me, but it would almost seem like uh, we're being told here that a body of believers that is not dealing with individuals that are in sin, the whole body is somehow held accountable for that. Um, I'm not sure, but it, it, it could almost, you could almost conclude that. That's serious. It's saying we are to repent. Over in verse 19, 
I know thy works and thy charity and thy service and thy faith and thy patience and thy works and has and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest the woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophet to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Here again, it, it appears like a, group, a body of believers that tolerates sin is being held accountable for it. What does it mean to be a New Testament church? Is Bethel a New Testament church? Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul here is working with a, a, a particular church that, that he worked with for quite some time. And he's writing a letter to them to deal with a particular situation. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication that is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that thou shouldst have, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned. And he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in the body but present in the spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which ye are gathered together, when ye are gathered together, that my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glory is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Paul here is telling the church at Corinth that, that you have someone there in your church that has fallen into sin and you're not dealing with it. And that is serious. He's saying that it is going to have a spreading effect in the body of believers if it is not dealt with. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And I don't know if this is uh, dealing with the same individual or not. It's possible. Second uh, Corinthians chapter two. Let's pick up at verse five. But if any have cause, but if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is his, this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So that contrarywise, ye ought rather to forgive him and to comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write, that I would know the proof of you, 
whether ye are obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now here Paul is saying that there's a repentant sinner in the church, and you need to receive him back into fellowship. And if you don't, Satan is going to get a foothold in your body of believers. We're talking about what does it mean to be a New Testament church? I think we're, we're safe in concluding that in a New Testament church, there are individuals that will fall into sin and the church will deal with them. They will be put out of fellowship. There's people that will be repentant and will be brought back into fellowship. How did all that work? Were names scratched out? Were names blotted out, taken off a list and put back on a list? I don't know. But somehow Paul knew, somehow this body of believers knew that this man had not been put, in, put out and this man had not been received back in. So they had some way of knowing who was in fellowship and who was out of fellowship. So I think as a body of believers today, it is expedient for us to do the same, to know the same, to know who is in and who is out of fellowship. Was there unity in the New Testament churches? You know, all of us have a little bit of this nonconformity blood in our veins. Uh, but what does the New Testament say about unity in the body of Christ? Galatians chapter 5 verse 25 says this. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Again in chapter 6 of Galatians, verse 16. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. You go to Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 16. He says this, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. All three of these verses, and I think it's these three, and there may be, may be a fourth place. Paul uses the same word, and the word walk is used many, many times in the New Testament, but it's only these few places, these three verses, and I think maybe there's one other that he uses this particular word. It's a military term of what it means to walk in rank, like marching soldiers, walking in step with one another. Uh, why did God's Spirit prompt Paul to use this word here? I don't know, but 
I think it would be naive, naive for us to assume that there was not a purpose. Was the New Testament church a church of unity? I think it was. Walking in step with the Holy Spirit, therefore, they were in step with one another. What does it mean to walk in step in practical daily living for Bethel Mennonite Church? I'm not sure that that is uh, real easy to describe, but I think we all know what it looks like when we're out of step or when someone else is out of step with the local body of believers and with the Holy Spirit's guidance in their life. Sometimes it's easier maybe to, to determine what is out of step than, than describe uh, what in step really is. We're thinking about unity in the New Testament church. You know, Paul quite often would use the human body as a description of the New Testament church. And we're all quite familiar with the human body, are we not? Uh, Dan back there probably could instruct us in things about the human body that, that we don't know about. But all of us are somewhat familiar with the human body because that's where we dwell, that's where we have our being. And, and we're quite grateful for the human body and, and how it all works. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul goes uh, to great lengths to describe how the human body is like the New Testament church. Uh, let's read part of this. Let's start at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are ye all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. You know, he's talking about some vastly different groups of people here that are all one body. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor can the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable upon these, we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked." 
that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one to another. And wherefore one member suffereth, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. <clears throat> A beautiful description of what it means to be the body of Christ and, and working together like, like our human body does so wonderfully. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. One through six. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all loneliness and meekness and long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Over uh, verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. As our body is joined together with ligaments and muscles and bones and how all that works, to edify one another in love. Is there that kind of a bond <clears throat> among us as the world looks in and sees us functioning with one another, does it get that kind of a picture of a, of a bond that we have the connection that a human body has with the different parts? Was the New Testament church having an impact on society around them, or was society making inroads into the church? John 13, 35, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. I think what Jesus was saying, the strongest testimony we as his disciples can have to the community around us is to have a, a deep love for one another. And that will show to them that these human beings have something that they don't have. To have this sacrificial love where we love each other with deep compassion and care far beyond what is normal in human relationships. That's going to point to them that these people know Jesus. Let's follow Paul around a little bit. Acts chapter 16, 
we're thinking now of is society influencing us or are we influencing society around us? Acts chapter 16, verse 25. This is Paul and Silas. They were at Philippi. Remember, they healed this, this girl that had the evil spirit where she could tell the future and her owners were very upset. They were thrown in prison and in prison. Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. And we know how an earthquake followed and how uh, the, the jailer and his house were saved. We see Paul Wherever Paul goes, he is affecting those around him rather than those around him affecting his life in negative ways. Over in chapter 17, verse 6, they were, uh, this is Paul in. Uh, they, they were looking for Paul and Silas and they couldn't find them. And so they, they take their, their frustrations out on Jason. It says this, And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying that these have turned the world upside down and are come hither also. They had the reputation of turning the world upside down, of making a difference wherever they went. Let's go over to Acts chapter 26, verse 28. Here is Paul uh, testifying before King Agrippa. And King Agrippa says this, Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. An ungodly king. Paul had this ungodly king's undivided attention and he made an impact on this man's heart and life. Whether he ever fully committed his life to Christ, we don't know. But Paul had an impact wherever he went. Acts chapter 28 Verse 31. Oh, I have a wrong. Okay, I'm, it's chapter 27. I have it wrote down wrong here. Acts chapter 27, verse 31. This is Paul uh, before he was shipwrecked. They were in this storm. And th this astounds me. You know, you know, sailors don't have a reputation of being Sunday school boys. And here, the, the impact that Paul has on, on these sailors. Let, let's read, uh, starting at verse 31. Paul said to the centurion and to the sailor, sailors, the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. This was the time they were, some of the guys were trying to sneak away. Then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off 
And while the day was coming, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, This day is the fourteenth day that ye have tarried and continued fasting, having taken nothing. So for fourteen days, nobody had eaten anything. Wherefore, I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health, that there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then were they all of good cheer, and they also took some meat. Now, to get the picture here, they're in a storm, a hurricane, and they know that likely they're all going to die. They're throwing out everything and they're lightening the ship. Nobody's eaten for 14 days. There was food there, but they weren't eating it. I mean, 14 days, that's a long time to go without food when it's right there in front of you. Did the storm stop? I don't, we don't have any indication that the storm stopped. The storm was still raging. All, the only difference was Paul said that you ought to eat. You know, God said that nothing bad's going to happen. You ought to eat. And he started eating. And they all cheered up. And they started eating. Nothing changed. The only thing that changed is Paul's impression. Paul's influence on these sailors, these soldiers. That's tremendous to think of this man of God among these evil men could make such an impact that they would just do what he said and, and they caught up in this spirit of cheer and began to eat. And we know how they were then all saved from, from destruction. Jesus calls us to be salt and to be light in the world around us. We should ask ourselves, what impact are we having in society around us? The reality is society is getting more and more sinful, and we can see that here in our own country and, and how perverted everything is becoming and, and it's being sanctioned and blessed. And if, if we are not as as a New Testament church in our day, if we are not being influenced by society around us, we will become more and more different. We will become a brighter and brighter light in the darkness of society around us. If we conclude that we are not a New Testament church like we ought to be, I think the first place we need to look is at our love for one another. I'd like to conclude, and this, uh, this doesn't mean it'll be over in one minute, but uh, we'll start the conclusion. As parents, you know, we teach our children by, by what we do and by what we leave undone. If we never quite get around to committing to the local body of believers, we're telling our children it's really not that important. If our commitment to the local body is, is just lip service, 
and it's not really coming from the heart and we're really not plugged in to a local body of believers. We're telling our children it's just really not something you have to take serious. I think we should ask ourselves the question, if my commitment to the local body would be like my commitment to making a living or to my job, would I still have a job? Would I be able to survive on that level of commitment? When I think of what it means to be a New Testament church, um, I often think of our, our Anabaptist forefathers. That's what spurred them to make the changes they made that caused them to be in prison, to be burned at the stake, to have their heads cut off. They started reading the same New Testament that you and I have, and they started living it out in their daily lives. And they suffered greatly for it. When Merle Burkholder was here a few weeks ago, he said, we all need to know our place in history. And there may be some here this morning that, that don't have Anabaptist ancestors. None of us choose our ancestors. But we're naive if we think the choices that we make today are not going to affect our descendants. Merrill said we need to know our place in history. I would like to, to take that a bit farther and saying, say, if we don't know how we got to where we are, we don't really know where we are. If we don't understand how our ancestors and the choices they made brought us to where we are today, we really don't know where we are today. We don't really know what responsibility we have to pass on to, to our descendants the, the values that came to us. You know, the things that prevent us today from commitment to the local body, it's shameful. When we think of our, our, our forefathers, you know, many times in the middle of the night, through rain or storm, they would go and meet together for accountability and encouragement and, and teaching of God's word in the caves and the woods and the barns, knowing full well that if they got caught, they would be imprisoned, killed, burned at the stake. You know, we struggle just to get out of bed, get in our climate-controlled vehicles and drive a few miles. And then, you know, because we have a few differences, we don't really commit. It's shameful in comparison. In closing, I'd like to share a little story. Uh, Hans Landis, this is 399 years ago on September the 29th. Hans Landis was, was a, a leader of uh, a body of believers in, in Switzerland. And he, the point of contention between him and the local uh, leaders, the, the civil leaders, and the, the civil leaders and the church leaders was kind of a, one of the same in a lot of ways in those days. And 
he was marrying people and he was baptizing people and that were, those were things he was not supposed to be doing. And the reason he was doing these things is because the, the local churches were, when communion time came, they were giving communion to the local drunks and whoever else would show up. There was not, holy living was not expected of people to be part of the body of believers. And through study of the New Testament, Hans decided that is not what the New Testament is teaching. Holy living is expected of the believers. And so they started their own uh, churches and, and he would marry people and, and baptize people. He was put into prison and he escaped and he was put back in prison again. On September the 29th, they, they came and got him. He was in a, in a little castle-like with water around it. And uh, they came with a boat and got him and they told him that, that he was going to be executed. Well, they had told him these kind of things before and it was always just to try to get him to recant. And so he thought this was just another one of their ploys. But as he got in the boat and started across, he saw a crowd of people gathering up at the execution block. And immediately his hands went to his head, realizing that he's going to lose his head today. So he got out of the boat and he walked up across the hill and they were leading him by a rope. He had his hands tied and the local people knew him. The man leading him knew him. They knew he was a righteous man. He dropped the rope. He could have run. He didn't. He just kept going. Got up to the hill. As he was walking, he saw his, his wife, his children, and he said, don't, don't come too close. You'll, you'll make my faith weak. You know, stay, stay back a bit. He goes up there, he kneels down, lays his head on the chopping block, and lost his head. Hans, Hans Landis knew what it meant to be part of a New Testament church. He was committed. What, what level of commitment do you and I have to Jesus? to being part of a local body of believers? I think it's a question we need to ask ourselves. I think it's a question we need to, to ask our children. In closing, I'd like to read the words of a song that had quite an impact on me as a, as a little boy. You can't do wrong and get by. There's a God who's standing at heaven's door. He's looking this universe o'er. And he sees each mortal with a searching eye. You can't do wrong and get by. You can't do wrong and get by no matter how much you may try. Nothing hidden can be everything he does see. You can't do wrong and get by. Out into the darkness you alone may go. The seeds for the wicked ones sow. There's an eye that watching 
There's an eye that's watching from the throne on high. You can't do wrong and get by. Yes, he knows your secrets, everything you do. He knows your life is untrue. You can ne'er deceive him. There's no use to try. You can't do wrong and get by. You know, I strongly believe that the New Testament church is a church that repents of sin. And if that's not happening, we are not a New Testament church.